Happy New Year. Uh, We are starting a new series this morning um, in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40 is where we're going to be this morning. So take your Bibles, open them up to Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to look at the first two verses in Isaiah 40. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, there are in fact some on the back table back there. Uh, Feel free to pick one up um, as the shuffle's happening here so that you can have these words in front of you. Uh, These words, and Mark even just prayed this, but these words are the very words of God that have been delivered down to us through generations of faithful men and women, faithful believers, um, but spoken out and inspired by God himself. He inspired men to write these, record these words uh, for our benefit. God had us in mind when he, when he was inspiring Isaiah to record these things in Isaiah chapter 40. He had you and me, us in Jamestown, North Dakota, Buffalo City Church in mind. God knows everything from the beginning until the end of time and extending from eternity past into eternity future. This is a comforting thought for us as we regard these words together this morning. So Isaiah chapter 40, if you have one of those black hardcover Bibles that you picked up on the back table, you're going to find the sermon text on page 561. 561. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord, from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. I became a Christian in the fall of 2004. Uh, This year will mark uh, 20 years uh, for, for me as a follower of Jesus. I was a freshman at NDSU and I was a civil engineering student. I was in high school. In high school, I, I liked math and things sort of like that, which if you ask me a question about them now, I'd know very little. So when it came time to pick a direction in life, this is the one that I chose. I asked myself a question. How can I use my skills to make money in order to live as comfortably as I can? That was the governing question that I was asking, um, that I was asking uh, myself as I moved from high school into college. And I thought that the, that path, the path to comfort was through making money and making a comfortable life for myself. But it really wasn't about money. It was about that comfort component. I didn't want to feel uncomfortable. In my life, based on having material possessions or uh, having a family uh, that fit a proper description according to, to, to my desires. So I decided to be a civil engineering major um, that represented my best chance at this life of, of comfort. When God opened my eyes to the reality of my own sin and for the need for forgiveness, and that forgiveness is only found in the person of Jesus Christ, God quickly showed that me that that was a idol. That I had erected an idol in my life that was comfort. The thing that I worshipped was comfort. The thing that I needed to worship was God. And so the idol needed to be toppled. But as I quickly found, even after living uh, about 19 years on this earth, this idol had become uh, a, a pretty big monster. It had most, if not all, of me. I had made my life's highest goals. Most of my aspirations, my career direction, my greatest ambitions were to serve it, and I was embedded. Hook, line, and sinker, it had me. And even now, nearly 20 years later, when the Holy Spirit reveals to me patterns of sin in my life, it's usually just because I don't want to feel uncomfortable. I don't like physical pain. I don't know, maybe most people don't, but I really don't like physical pain. Uh, during the ice storm, I drug a branch to the backyard, and like a total doofus, I slipped and took the branch in the ribs, and my ribs are, are in, I'm in a lot of pain. Um, and so when the kids climb on me, 
I get a bit snappy. They can attest to it. Maybe don't ask them. Uh, when things get a bit loud in our house, I like things to be quiet. I'm, I'm more of an introvert, and so I like things to be chill. But we have six kids. This is one way that God continues to topple that idol of comfort in my life. And so I start to feel an edge when things get loud in our house because I'm unable to think a thought. <laughs> and that's uncomfortable to me because I like to think thoughts. When I get a big medical bill in the mail, I feel overwhelmed, wondering where the money will come from because I begin to see that new thing that I had hoped that we would get, that I thought would bring me some comfort, sort of slipping away into the future. It's further away on the calendar, having that thing Maybe some of you can identify with this. Comfort is a way in our culture that we're regularly marketed to. People regularly talk about wanting to feel and be comfortable. The vehicles and furniture and all sorts of things are marketed to us. Banking on the idea that we have submitted to the idol of comfort. A large portion of 2024 here at Buffalo City Church is going to be dedicated to 16 chapters in Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40. We're going to look through uh, Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah is one of the largest books in the Bible. If you're measuring by chapters, there are 66 of them. So taking 16 is even a small portion of this one book. Uh, if you're considering words, it's one of the largest too. There are some, some of the longest chapters in Scripture as well. The book can be broken up into three neat sections, and we're actually going to look at the middle section of these three sections in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters are written to God's people who are in a state of rebellion. Even at the beginning of chapter 40, when God speaks comfort to his people, he recognizes that in the 39 preceding chapters, the people of Israel, the people who live in Judah, are seeking comfort and security in the world from means that are not in fact God. They're resisting God and they're breaking covenant with God. And so God, in those 39 chapters that precede this, uh, he promises to discipline them. And he promises to bring them to discipline through exile. You're taking them out of Jerusalem and moving them to a place unknown that's not their home. The next 16 chapters, the 16 chapters that we're going to look at, verses, or, uh, chapters 40 through 55, are written to God's people after they are carried off into exile. So if you look at the end of 39 and look at 40 in your Bible, there's a big gap here in years. Uh, what happens is, in multiple generations even, between 39 and 40, and what happens is the Holy Spirit inspires Isaiah to look down in time to see this exile and then to record words so that uh, the people of God could be comforted after the discipline of the Lord comes to them. God speaks comfort to his people in exile. That's what's happening here in chapter 40. He reveals himself to them afresh through his word, and he promises his people deliverance, and he promises them hope. And then the final section of Isaiah is in chapters 55 through 66, and this is future-oriented. What will the future look like for God's people who hold fast to God's covenant. So again, three sections here. The middle section is what we're going to focus a good portion of 2024 on as a church. Spending time in this middle section is going to give us a huge amount of awesome truths about who God is. That's the design. That's what we're hoping to do together as a congregation in 2024 is to gaze upon the glory of God together, to marvel at his majesty, it also tells us about how he relates to his people and what he promises to his people. 
This honestly is one of my favorite extended portions of Scripture. There is a lot to learn here, and there's a lot of rich truth. It's a rich vein of treasure that we can mine endlessly. And that's good news. We are not even going to come close to doing this section of Scripture justice because, because there is so much here. God encouraging his people in exile. Contained even within these 16 chapters are four prophecies that are directly fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to marvel at these together. They're called the servant songs. Maybe you've heard of them. They're found in Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 through 4, 49, 1 through 6, 50, 4 through 9, and then probably the most famous one is 52, 13 through 53, 12. And those sections celebrate the sacrificial death of the Redeemer who's promised to Israel. The one who comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as Jesus would say in his own words. And those prophecies are entirely fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so our goal in considering these 16 chapters in Isaiah is going to be threefold. One, to grow in our awe of God as we behold or as we look at Him. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Him as He has revealed Himself in Scripture. That's one. Grow in our awe of God as we behold or look at Him. Two, to be encouraged by God's faithfulness to His people. even in hostile situation. And three, then, through these servant songs and elsewhere, to marvel at Christ crucified. Those are the three things that are, we're, we're aiming at as we, look at these, as we look at these passages. It has been said that we become what we behold. We become what we behold. And to behold is a word that we see often in the Bible, but it just means to look. We could easily translate, behold, look. So we could say that we look like what we look at. We as people look like what we look at. Our eyes go to what is shaping us or what is forming us as people. And when I became a Christian and I looked down the path of my life and saw comfort at the end of the road, that idol shaped me. It shaped my decision making. It shaped my responses to other humans. It shaped my time and how I spent it. And for the Christian, however, when we look at these verses, when we look at our Bible as a whole, but when we look at these passages, we must look down the page at verse 9 in chapter 40. There's a command that is given to us right at the end of verse 9. Simply this, behold your God. Look at your God. Look to Him. May He be the thing that you behold and that you marvel over in order that He might shape you into His image. There are many things that vie for our attention, vie for our eyes, that we Long to look at, but friends, nothing, nothing can compare or come even close to, to, to beholding our God. So I just chose the first two verses in chapter 40 to look at today. We'll usually look at much larger sections, but I kind of want to go back to chapter 39 so that we know where we're coming out of into chapter 40. There are two ideas out of these two verses that I read a moment ago that will guide our time together this morning. And really, again, chapter 39, we're going to look at that as well. The first idea is this. King Hezekiah's voluntary short-sightedness. And then second... God's comfort for his people. King Hezekiah's voluntary short-sightedness and God's comfort for his people. Let's begin by going backwards to chapter 39, King Hezekiah's voluntary short-sightedness. 
If you've read the history of the kings in your Bible, you find a pretty crummy list. You don't find a lot of things that we should imitate as people. Hezekiah, in fact, is one of the rare good kings in the Old Testament. His dad was Ahaz, and Ahaz was not a good king. He was a wicked king, Scripture tells us very clearly. But when Hezekiah took the throne, he was keenly aware of God's work in and among his people. And so he took action as king. He tore down pagan temples. He tore down pagan idols. The bronze serpent that Moses has held up in the wilderness, he destroyed it. Why? Because it had become an idol for the people of Israel. Ahaz nailed the doors shut on the temple of Jerusalem, but Hezekiah, his son, reopened it and cleaned it out and made it a place of worship. Israel began celebrating the Passover again after decades, even hundreds of years, of not celebrating one of the most, if not the most, important event in their history, the exodus out of Egypt and the Passover. Hezekiah's reign was in the southern kingdom of Judah, but they're split. So there's a northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom had already been conquered by the Assyrians, carried off into exile by the Assyrians. Hezekiah knew that the Assyrians were a threat to the southern kingdom as well, but Hezekiah called Isaiah, his friend and the prophet. He called him, and Isaiah assured Hezekiah that the Assyrians would not enter Jerusalem. Hezekiah prayed to God, for deliverance from the Assyrians, and God spared the southern kingdom. But as Hezekiah's life moves on, he gets sick. He got ill. And Isaiah came to him, and Isaiah knew he was going to die, and he told him, you're going to die. But Hezekiah prays to God, and God heals Hezekiah, and promises Hezekiah that he would live 15 more years. I'm going to give you 15 more years of your reign. And then we get to Isaiah chapter 39. And Hezekiah makes a misstep. He's a good king. He submits to God, but he makes a mistake. Assyria had conquered the northern kingdom. God told Hezekiah that Assyria would not be a problem for the southern kingdom. But there was another threat on the horizon, and that was the Babylonians. The Babylonians seem like pretty nice people at the beginning of chapter 39 because Babylon sends an envoy because they heard that Hezekiah was sick. They sent a care package to Hezekiah. It was like some Sudoku puzzles or something. Get well soon, balloons. And what Hezekiah does is make a mistake. He's sort of flattered that this up-and-coming power, Babylon, would, would show up and care that he was ill. And so he shows them everything the kingdom has to offer. He shows them everything in Jerusalem, all the wealth, all the military assets. Look at verse 4 in chapter 39. He said, what have they seen in your house? This is Isaiah talking. Isaiah said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Really? Hezekiah gave away all the state secrets. He declassified everything and showed it to the Babylonians. He foolishly disclosed all of the wealth and the level of military power that, is, that, that was possessed in Judah. And he showed it to someone who could quickly become their enemy. He painted, what he does is he paints a target on Judah's back. They got some pretty nice stuff over there. In verses 5 through 7, then Isaiah speaks to Hezekiah. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house 
and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is what Isaiah says to him. Now, Hezekiah makes a mistake. By showing, by declassifying everything, by showing them all their assets, all the assets in Judah, this is a mistake. But the bigger mistake is what he says next. Hezekiah acts pridefully. Rather than saying like, oh yeah, that wasn't a good idea. And repenting, coming to the Lord, praying to God that this in fact would not be the case. Hezekiah knew that Assyria had been deterred because he called out to, the, to God. But Babylon was salivating. And remember that I said that the kings were pretty crummy? Israel had been storing up judgment for themselves because of idolatry, because they mishandled and misused and even ignored the word of God. The kings led the people, Hezekiah's father included, led the people in those ways. And now the time had come, and Hezekiah opened the door to exile and pride. But again, the bigger problem lies in what he says in verse 8. Because even the worst of situations, God can reverse. But here, Hezekiah says to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. Hold on, we just read that part, right, about his kids being carried off into exile. What part about that was good? What, what, what part is Hezekiah referring to as good? That nothing shall be left in Judah? That everything is going to be carried away, including the people? That his own lineage and line shall be taken away and be enslaved? What's the good part? This is what I'm calling Hezekiah's voluntary short-sightedness. The judgment of God is coming upon the people he is over as king. His kids are going to be enslaved. At the hand of the Babylonians, God's people will be ripped from their beds in the middle of the night and carried into exile, a place that is not their home. And he says, the word of the Lord is good? Why? The reason he says that is because he chooses to not think beyond his own lifespan. That he knows, I've got about 15 more years in me. I won't ever see that. Not my problem. Not my problem. There will be peace and security in my days, he says. The idols of peace and security and comfort like to lie to us in this way. They say things like, what does it matter? What happens after you die? What, matter, what does it matter the, what the future holds if you're not around for it? You live your life. You only get one. You do you. Take care of yourself. That's not your problem. Your kids or grandkids will deal with it. This idea, this concept that exists and we see clearly in Hezekiah, this voluntary short-sightedness has direct implications for parents. Whether you're the parent of young children or your children are grown. Serving the idols of peace and security and comfort will come at the expense of your family and your children. When Hezekiah does here, instead of calling out to God and saying, God, may this not be the case, he says, I won't be around to see it, so what does it matter? He mortgaged his children's future and his grandchildren's future by living for himself. 
Hezekiah literally says that when his sons are carried off to be enslaved in Babylon, this is a word that is good. And of course, we sit here this morning, we think that sounds really foolish. That we're supposed to read this and think that guy is a fool in this moment. That's what we're supposed to think. But we as parents, and many of us in this room are parents, must not do the same thing. When we erect idols in our home, idols like comfort and peace and security, we can be sure that our children will follow in serving those idols and worshiping those idols. They will see us beholding those idols, and they will behold them too. They will become servants of the things that you are a servant to. And so we must not say that the discipleship or even the aim of the direction of our children's lives is not our problem. That it doesn't belong to us. That it's not my deal because they'll make their own choices. Of course they will make their own choices. But discipleship is leading someone to know God and His Son Jesus Christ through the Word of God. Doing spiritual good to another. And every parent is charged with that role for their kids. It's not another person in the church, the pastor or a youth group leader. It's not an Iwana leader or a school teacher or a grandparent's job to disciple your children. My job, my job, God has appointed me to equip you to disciple your kids in your home and to disciple, my job is to disciple my own children. When your kids come to church or go to Awana or to youth group, it cannot be because you think that it's not your job to disciple your kids. When your kids go to school, you're responsible to correct anything that contradicts God's word that they hear in the classroom. That means you must know what they're hearing in the classroom. When your kids spend the night at grandma and grandpa's house, it must not be the only time that they pray or read the Bible outside of church on Sunday. If you're a parent of a child or multiple children, it's God who gave you those children and he makes you responsible to disciple those children. That is the role of the parent. You must know that when you come to congregational worship as a family, that you're pursuing, that you're pursuing being equipped. Not simply for yourself, not like that was good and it made me feel good but that you're being equipped to train your children, to train your children, to disciple them effectively, to move them towards maturity in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're neglecting the discipleship of your children, it's probably because you're pursuing something or beholding something that's not God. It's probably because there's an idol in your life that needs to be toppled. Pray. Pray. God, would you expose what I am serving and what I'm worshiping that is not you? And would I communicate effectively to my family, to my children, to my spouse that you're worth more than anything this world has to offer? If we say bad stuff will happen when I'm dead, why should I care? It's not my problem. This is what we do when we pursue things Careers, hobbies, vacations, convenience, relational peace, financial security, above God himself. Hezekiah did die. He got that 15 years and he died. There was peace and security until he died, just like he says. He knew, he knew the word that was spoken to him and there was peace and security. Hezekiah's son Manasseh took over as king. He was 12. He was probably one of the worst kings in Israel's history. And the good that Hezekiah did, Manasseh undid. Manasseh repented later, but because of all the wickedness that he had done, he was unable to do the sin, undo the sin that he had done. And the kings of Judah continued in this pattern, but that brings us to chapter 40. To chapter 40. And these two verses 
where now God, after several generations, speaks comfort to his people after they've been ripped from their beds, after they've been carried to a land that is not their own, unknown, unable to speak the language, didn't know anything, didn't know anyone. This is the Babylonian exile. And so we see here then God's comfort for his people. Very important to acknowledge that God speaks comfort to his people in exile. When the Babylonians come and take Judah in exile, God speaks these words. These are the very first words that they would hear in exile. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. This isn't the peace and the security and the comfort that Hezekiah said would come to him. That he decided was good with no eye on the future. This is a different kind of comfort. The true comfort that they should have been pursuing all along. This is the comfort of a father. And know what God doesn't say here. It's important to understand what God doesn't say here. God doesn't say, you did this to yourself, guys. Figure it out. Sometimes his parents were tempted to do that. Figure this one out. You really screwed up. It's time for you to decide which direction you're going. But he says, comfort, comfort to my people, says your God. Again, a different type of comfort. When I said earlier that comfort was one of the first idols that needed to be toppled when I became a Christian, what I didn't mean is that comfort is bad. Comfort is, in fact, a good thing. It is, in fact, a good thing. But as it is with most idols in this world, it is a good gift from God that is, that is emphasized in a way that God didn't design. True comfort is a good thing, but true comfort can only be found in God. Those who pursue comfort as their God may find small temporary comfort. But those who pursue God as their God receive eternal, all-encompassing, everlasting comfort. When we say the word comfort here, we mean comfort in every sense of the word too, because we use this in, a different, in several different ways. But the definition has a wide enough range that even our uses, our multiple uses of the word comfort are contained. We think about comfort typically first, I think, as the resolution of grief. A loved one has died, and I long for comfort. This is contained within the idea. Does God promise his people who face grief? Does he promise them comfort in the midst of their mourning? Yes. The people of God carried off into exile, grieving for their lost home, Jerusalem, and God offers comfort to them. The word comfort here in this text literally means to breathe again. To breathe again. When we experience discomfort, we might hold our breath. If you've ever been in pain, you might find yourself holding your breath. And if someone's attending to you in your pain, they say, you need to breathe. That's the idea. You need to breathe. Women who are in labor are given breathing exercises as they're in labor pains. The comfort God speaks to his people is aimed at the discomfort they feel because they're in a new, new environment, among a new people, in a place that is not their home. And God tells them to breathe. The comfort God speaks to his people is aimed at the discomfort they feel, wondering if God is for them or if he has, in fact, abandoned them. And God says, breathe again, I am with you. I'm here, you are in Babylon, I am here. I'm not back in Jerusalem, I'm here with you. The comfort God speaks to his people is aimed at the discomfort they feel because they just witnessed brutal warfare. And wondered if more was coming for them. Is this over? 
is this nightmare that we've been experiencing as these Babylonians have carried us off into exile, is it over or is there more? The comfort God speaks to his people is aimed at the discomfort that they feel because of their sin. This is at the heart of what's going on. What does God intend for his people at the deepest level? What does God intend for his people at the deepest level? And we find our answer here. The answer is comfort. All of our discomfort is a result of sin. Yes, the sin around us, but but our sin. God's action on our behalf is to remove our sin. Friends, Jesus came into the world to offer forgiveness of sin by dying in our place. In the second verse here in 40, the comfort that God speaks to his people is because her iniquity is pardoned. God does this through the cross of Christ. Iniquity, sin, is pardoned because of the cross of Christ. Friends, you may be seeking comfort in this life, but without the acknowledgement that your sin has created dramatic discomfort, you will not find comfort. Many people are looking for comfort, but they're seeking it by blaming others, by blaming their circumstances. Doing everything but acknowledging their own sin. But how do we come to Christ? We come to Christ in repentance and faith. Repentance is actively acknowledging that we in fact are sinful. And then turning from our sin. And faith is believing that Christ is the only one who can offer us forgiveness of sins. Not self-justifying by saying, but if those people were a little nicer... Not saying my parents did this to me, they raised me wrongly. That won't provide any comfort. Not saying our employer is preventing me from reaching my potential. That won't provide comfort. Blaming others in our circumstances for our sin will not absolve us of our sin. And it will therefore not provide the comfort that we need. So what is the path to true comfort? The comfort that God speaks to his people here. How do you get it? By coming to a loving father who does not neglect the discipline of his children. The path to true comfort is coming to a loving father who does not neglect the discipline of his children. How do you and I approach the father? There is only one way to come to the father. It is through Jesus Christ. He said it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How do we approach a loving heavenly Father who does not neglect the discipline of his children? We do it through Jesus. And here we're told in Isaiah chapter 40 that God's people receive from the Lord's hand double for all of their sins. His discipline stings. They've been carried in exile. But when his discipline comes, he doesn't stand at the other side of the room, arms folded coldly, and say, you got what you deserved. In a loving embrace, he brings them in and says, comfort. Comfort my people. His discipline came because of their sin, but his comfort comes while the sting of discipline is still fresh. Parents, when you discipline your children, if you have young children and you discipline your children, comfort should be a vital component. And doing it quickly should be the timing. Proverbs 13.24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline. When it is evident that our children have felt the sting of discipline, that is when comfort is your duty. If you administer a spanking or a timeout and you're still seething, then you're not imaging your heavenly Father in your discipline. 
The parent that seeks to correct a child through discipline is the person who willingly submits to the discipline of his or her heavenly father who understands that it is the path to comfort. Parents, when you bring the sting in your discipline, you offer your child a comfort. And the author of Proverbs says that this is love. When you offer comfort after administering the sting of discipline, you show your children what God's discipline looks like. In Isaiah chapter 40, God's discipline of his people is by letting them be carried off into exile. But he immediately speaks comfort to them. Friends, the world hates this parenting strategy, and Christians sometimes hate this parenting strategy as well. It's not a parenting strategy, however. It's the Word of God and how God tells us to parent our children. It may be an uncomfortable topic. But, I know I've quoted this many times to you, J.C. Ryle once said, Be not wiser than God. Discipline your children as God disciplines you. Sometimes as Christians, we say things are good, that we're receiving God's blessing when things are good around us. But when something goes wrong, we say things like Satan's attacking us. That may be true. But oftentimes what we're experiencing when we're experiencing discomfort is just the discipline of God, who is revealing to us sin in our lives in order that we might see it, and confess it, and turn back to Him. Oftentimes we misidentify God's discipline for a wicked intent from Satan. But oftentimes people in those scenarios do not think that God would even bother to discipline His children. But if you don't think that God would bother to discipline His children, then why would God bother to offer you any comfort? And so, when you believe that God doesn't discipline his children, then you don't believe that he's the one that can offer you comfort, and therefore you begin seeking comfort in other, in other places. And when you seek comfort in other places, other than a heavenly father who does not neglect the discipline of our children, then what happens is we find small temporary comfort. We resist the all-encompassing, everlasting comfort that comes to us through Christ. Why does God carry out the discipline of his people at the end of chapter 39, between chapters 39 and 40 in Isaiah? He carries out the discipline of his people because they've sought comfort somewhere other than him. And he knows that the only way to be everlastingly comforted is to come to him through Jesus Christ. He wants them and intends for them that they would truly know the comfort that can only be offered through him. That leads us then to a conclusion. Three things briefly this morning to ask yourself to consider as you go away. Considering these two verses in parts of 39. The first question is this. And this is more of an entry question into Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. What are your eyes drawn to? What are your eyes drawn to? Again, I said it a moment ago. There are many things that are vying for your attention in your eyes. Your phone is probably one of the most, uh, the easiest examples of this. Your phone is vying for your eyes because it's really easy to spend a lot of time simply scrolling. But you become what you behold. And when you behold the content from the content creators, you become what that content is. The algorithm tells you who you should become. If you genuinely ask yourself this question, what are my eyes drawn to you? you'll find that your eyes are always being pulled. And friends, some of you in this room may not have looked at God in a very long time. 
Some of you are looking at God regularly through his word, but the allure of things on earth are threatening to pull your eyes away. And remember as we work through these 16 chapters in Isaiah, our goal is to really behold our God. To look at him and to be in awe of him. What are your eyes drawn to? The second question is this. Where are you voluntarily short-sighted? Peace and security and comfort sought in the world's ways will quickly fade. But lasting comfort for this life and the next and the next generation, for that matter, is only found in Christ. It didn't matter to Hezekiah what happened to future generations. Jesus purchased a life that loves others, and that includes future generations. If you're thinking in 2024, how can I love others well? Think about your great-grandchildren. Think about your great-great-grandchildren. We cannot look at our kids, no matter their age or our age, and think that it's not our problem what happens to them when they're gone. And I'm not just talking about leaving them a financial inheritance, although we should consider that a, a, a portion that's included. Men in this room, if you're a father, if you're a grandfather, build things with your grandkids and great-grandkids in mind. A life built on the rock of God's Word. Businesses that operate integrity with Christian values and principles at the heart. A marriage that shows love for your wife. Jonathan Edwards was America's greatest theologian. I don't think there's any dispute. You may not know who that is, but that's fine. He would have never been born. If he would have never been born, you probably would have heard more readily about his, about his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. Timothy was discipled by the Apostle Paul, lived in close contact with the Apostle Paul. But Paul credits Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice for his faith. We should aim our sights at spiritual maturity in our lives for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that exceeds our own. Spiritual maturity in them that exceeds our own. Friends, when you center your home on God's word, men especially, you leave for your children an opportunity for them to seek spiritual maturity in a way that maybe you weren't able to as a young person. Your great-great-grandchildren probably won't know your name. I don't know my great-great-grandfather's name. Maybe you will. Maybe you logged on to Ancestry.com. I don't know my great-great-grandfather's name, and your great-great-grandchildren might not know your name either. But faithfulness here, and rejecting the voluntary short-sightedness of Hezekiah, can ensure that your faith can be found in them. Last concluding point this morning, Christ is our comfort in life and in death. This is a statement, not a question for you to ask yourself, but something to internalize. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism reads, what is your only comfort in life and death? That's the very first question. And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ is our only comfort in life and in death. Christ is our comfort. Friends, the, the comfort that comes through 
coming to our Heavenly Father, who does not neglect the discipline of our children, can only come through the person of Jesus Christ. There is no other way to approach Him. And there is no other way to have the comfort. Christ is our comfort. Later in Isaiah, in one of those servant songs I mentioned earlier, we find the words fulfilled in Christ, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. God treats us as sons if you are in Christ, and He disciplines us as sons if we are in Christ, but we are only sons through Jesus Christ. Those who reject God by rejecting Christ are under the wrath of God, and their sin wreaks havoc in their lives. But those who come to God through faith in Christ are brought into the family of God, where God freely, as a loving Heavenly Father, disciplines and brings us into greater understanding of the comfort that only He can provide. In the Christmas season that we just finished, we reflect that God is with us. Jesus, we say, is Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us. God's people who were carried into exile were wondering if God was with them, or if he was back in Jerusalem. Is God here in this place with us now? Is he back there? Did he leave us? Is he standing with his arms folded coldly in the corner, scolding us with his eyes? But it's not true. He says, comfort, comfort my people. Your God is not in Jerusalem. He is here with you. Therefore, breathe again. God is with you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in Christ, you are our comfort. God, would we as your people understand that it is only through Christ that we can have this comfort. God, if there are men and women in this room who are seeking comfort outside of a loving Heavenly Father who does not neglect the discipline of His children, Would they in these moments, through the power of your Spirit, come to an understanding that it is only through your Son, Jesus Christ, that they can have the forgiveness of sins and no true comfort? God, would you expose in us the idols that we long to serve for our children's sake and for our grandchildren's sake, for our great-grandchildren's sake? Would you expose those things and cause us through your Holy Spirit to turn from them and to turn to Christ? God, we thank you that your word is clear to us. That you do not neglect the discipline of your children, but you in fact bring immediate comfort to those who feel the sting. God, would our hearts be inclined to you? Would we learn to love you more as we respond by singing? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.